My beloved brothers and sisters, how grateful I am to be with you this beautiful Easter morning when our thoughts turn to the Savior of the world. I send my love and greetings to each of you and pray that our Heavenly Father will inspire my words. This conference marks seven years since I was sustained as president of the Church. They've been busy years, filled not only with a few challenges, but also with countless blessings. Among the most enjoyable and sacred of these blessings has been my opportunity to dedicate and rededicate temples. Most recently, this past November, my privilege to dedicate the beautiful new Phoenix, Arizona Temple. I was joined by President Dieter F. Uttdorf, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, Elder Richard J. Maines, Elder Lynn G. Robbins, Elder Ken F. Richards. On the evening prior to the dedication, a marvelous cultural celebration was held. Over 4,000 of our young youth from the Temple District performed beautifully. The following day, the Temple was dedicated in three sacred and inspiring sessions. The building of temples is a very clear indication of the growth of the Church. We currently have 144 temples in operation worldwide, with five being renovated and 13 under, more under construction. In addition, 13 temples, which were previously announced, are in various stages of preparation before construction begins. This year, we anticipate rededicating two temples and dedicating five new temples, which are scheduled for completion. For the past two years, as we have concentrated on our efforts in completing previously announced temples, we have held in abeyance plans for any additional temples. This morning, however, I am very pleased to announce three new temples will be built in the following locations—Habajan, Ivory Coast, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and Bangkok, Thailand. What marvelous blessings are in store for our faithful members in these areas and, indeed, wherever temples are located throughout the world. The process of determining needs and finding locations for additional temples is ongoing. For we desire that as many members as possible have an opportunity to attend the temple without great sacrifices of time and resources. As we have done in the past, we will keep you informed as decisions are made in this regard. As I think of temples, my thoughts turn to the many blessings we receive therein. As we enter through the doors of the temple, we leave behind us the distractions and confusion of the world. Inside this sacred sanctuary, we find beauty and order. There is rest for our souls and respite from the cares of our lives. As we attend the temple, there can come to us a dimension of spirituality and a feeling of peace which will transcend any other feeling which could come into the human heart. We will grasp the true meaning of the words of the Savior when He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid.
Such peace can permeate any heart, hearts that are troubled, hearts that are burdened down with grief, hearts that feel confusion, hearts that plead for help. I recently learned firsthand of a young man who attended the temple with a heart pleading for help. Many months earlier, he had received his call to serve in a mission in South America. However, his visa was delayed for such a lengthy period that he was reassigned to a mission in the United States. Although disappointed he could not serve in the area of his original call, he nonetheless worked hard at his new assignment, determined to serve to the best of his ability. He became discouraged, however, because of negative experiences he had with missionaries, who seemed to him to be more interested in having a good time than in sharing the gospel. A few short months later, this young man suffered a very serious health challenge, which left him partially paralyzed. And so he was sent home on a medical leave. Some months later, the young man had healed him completely, and his paralysis had disappeared. He was informed that he would once again be able to serve as a missionary, a blessing for which he had prayed daily. The only disappointing news was that he returned to the same mission which he had left, where he felt the behaviors and attitudes of some missionaries were less than they should be. He came to the temple to seek comfort and a confirmation that he could have a good experience as a missionary. His parents also had prayed that this temple visit would provide the help their son needed. As the young man entered the celestial room following the session, he sat in a chair and began to pray for guidance from his Heavenly Father. Another who entered the celestial room shortly afterward was a young man whose name was Landon. He walked into the room. His gaze was immediately drawn to the young man sitting on the chair, eyes closed, and obviously praying. Landon received an unmistakable prompting that he should speak with the young man. Hesitant to interrupt, however, he decided to wait. After several minutes had gone by, the young man was still praying. Landon knew he could no longer postpone the prompting. He approached the young man and gently touched his shoulder. The young man opened his eyes. Startled that he had been disturbed, Landon said quietly, and I quote, I felt impressed. I need to talk with you, although I'm not certain why. As they began to converse, the young man poured out his heart to Landon, explaining his circumstances and ending with his desire to receive some comfort and encouragement concerning his mission. Landon, who had returned from a successful mission just a year earlier, told of his own mission, experiences, the challenges and concerns he had faced, the manner in which he turned to the Lord for help, and the blessings he had received. His words were comforting and reassuring, and his enthusiasm for his mission was contagious. Eventually, as his fears subsided, a feeling of peace came to the young man. He felt deep gratitude as he realized his prayer had been answered. The two young men prayed together. Then Landon prepared to leave. 
happy that he had listened to the inspiration which had come to him. As he stood to go, the young man asked Landon, where did you serve your mission? To this point, neither of them had mentioned to the other the name of the mission in which he had served. When Landon replied with the name of his mission, tears welled up in the eyes of the young man. Landon had served in the very mission to which the young man would be returning. In a recent letter to me, Landon shared with me the young man's parting words to him, and I quote them. I had faith Heavenly Father would bless me, but I never could have imagined he'd send someone to help me who had served in my own mission. I know now that all would be well. Close quote. The humble prayer of a sincere heart had been heard and answered. My brothers and sisters, in our lives we'll have temptations. We will have trials and challenges. As we go to the temples, as we remember the covenants we make there, we will be better able to overcome those temptations and to bear our trials. In the temple, we can find peace. The blessings of the temple are priceless. One for which I'm grateful every day of my life is that which beloved, my beloved wife Frances and I received so we knelt at a sacred altar and made covenants binding us together for all eternity. There is no blessing more precious to me than the peace and comfort I receive from the knowledge I have that she and I will be together again. May our Heavenly Father bless us that we may have the spirit of temple worship, that we may be obedient to His commandments, that we may follow carefully the steps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I testify that He's our Redeemer. He's the Son of God. He is who came forth from the grave that first Easter morning, bringing with Him the gift of everlasting life for all of God's children. On this beautiful day, as we celebrate that momentous event, may we offer prayers of gratitude for his great and marvelous gift to us, that this may be so, I pray humbly in his holy name. Amen. President Monson, thank you for announcing those three new temples in such marvelous locations. President, we love and sustain you with all our hearts. And our dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, please have a wonderful and happy Easter Sunday, all of you. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate. We celebrate the most long-awaited and glorious event in the history of the world. It is the day that changed everything. On that day, my life changed. Your life changed. The destiny of all of God's children changed. On that blessed day, the Savior of mankind, who had taken upon himself the chains of sin and death that held us captive, burst those chains and set us free.
Because of the sacrifice of our beloved Redeemer, death has no sting. The grave has no victory. Satan has no lasting power. And we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Truly, the Apostle Paul was correct when he said we can find comfort one another with these words. We often speak of the Savior's atonement, and rightly so. In Jacob's words, why not speak of the atonement of Christ and attain a perfect knowledge of him? But as we talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, and prophesy of Christ at every opportunity, we must never lose our sense of awe and profound gratitude for the eternal sacrifice of the Son of God. The Savior's atonement cannot become commonplace in our teaching, our conversation, or in our hearts. It is sacred and it is holy. For it was through this great and last sacrifice that Jesus the Christ brought salvation to all those who shall believe in his name. I marvel to think that the Son of God would condescend to save us as imperfect, impure, mistake-prone, and ungrateful as we often are. I have tried to understand the Savior's atonement with my finite mind, and the only explanation I come up with is God loves us deeply, perfectly, and everlastingly. I cannot even begin to estimate the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. A powerful expression of that love is what the scripture often call the grace of God, the divine assistance and endowment of strength by which we grow from the flawed and limited beings we are now into exalted beings of truth and light until we are glorified in truth and know all things. It is a most wondrous thing, this grace of God. Yet it is often misunderstood. Even so, we, we should know about God's grace if we intend to inherit what has been prepared for us in his eternal kingdom. To that end, I would like to speak of grace. In particular, first, how grace unlocks the gates of heaven. And second, how it opens the windows of heaven. First, grace unlocks the gates of heaven. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and because there cannot any unclean thing enter in the, in the kingdom of God, every one of us is unworthy to return to God's presence. 
Even if we were to serve God with our whole souls, it is not enough, for we would still be unprofitable servants. We cannot earn our way into heaven. The demands of justice stand as a barrier, which we are powerless to overcome on our own. But all is not lost. The grace of God is our great and everlasting hope. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the plan of mercy appeases the demands of justice and brings about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. Our sins, though they may be as scarlet, can become white as snow. Because our beloved Savior gave himself a ransom for all, an entrance into his everlasting kingdom is provided unto us. The gate is unlocked. But the grace of God does not merely restore us to our previous innocent state. If salvation means only erasing our mistakes and sins, then salvation, as wonderful as it is, does not fulfill the Father's aspirations for us. His aim is much higher. He wants his sons and daughters to become like him. With the gift of God's grace, the path of discipleship does not lead backwards. It leads upward. It leads to heights we can scarcely comprehend. It leads to exaltation in the celestial kingdom of our Heavenly Father, where we, surrounded by our loved ones, receive of His fullness and of His glory. All things are ours, and we are Christ's. Indeed, all that the Father hath shall be given unto us. To inherit this glory, we need more than an unlocked gate. We must enter through this gate with a heart's desire to be changed, a change so traumatic that the scriptures describe it as being born again, yea, born of God, changed from our worldly and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. Second, grace opens the windows of heaven. Another element of God's grace is the opening of the windows of heaven through which God pours out blessings of power and strength, enabling us to achieve things that otherwise we would be far beyond our reach. It is by God's amazing grace that his children can overcome the undercurrents and quicksands of the deceiver, rise above sin, and are perfected in Christ. Though we all have weaknesses, we can overcome them. Indeed, it is by the grace of God that if we humble ourselves and have faith, weak things can become strong. Throughout our lives, 
God's grace bestows temporal blessings and spiritual gifts that magnify our abilities and enrich our lives. His grace refines us. His grace helps us become our best selves. In the Bible, we read of Christ's visit to the home of Simon the Pharisee. Outwardly, Simon seemed to be a good and upright man. He regularly checked off his to-do list of religious obligations. He kept the law, paid his tithing, observed the Sabbath, prayed daily, and went to the synagogue. But while Jesus was with Simon, a woman approached washed the Savior's feet with her tears, and anointed his feet with fine oil. Simon was not pleased with this display of worship, for he knew that this woman was a sinner. Simon thought, if Jesus didn't know this, he must not be a prophet, or he would not have let the woman touch him. Perceiving his thoughts, Jesus turned to Simon and asked a question. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they both had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered that it was the one who was forgiven the most. Then Jesus taught a profound lesson. Seest thou this woman? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Which of these two people are we most like? Are we like Simon? Are we confident and comfortable in our good deeds, trusting in our own righteousness? Are we perhaps a little impatient with those who are not living to up to our standards? Are we on autopilot, going through the motions, attending our meetings, yawning through gospel doctrine class, <laughs> and perhaps checking our cell phones during segment service? Or are we like this woman? who thought she was completely and hopelessly lost because of sin. Do we love much? Do we understand our indebtedness to Heavenly Father and plead with all our souls for the grace of God? When we kneel to pray, is it to replay the greatest hits of our own righteousness? Or is it to confess our faults? plead for God's mercy, and shed tears of gratitude for the amazing plan of redemption. Salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. It is purchased by the blood of the Son of God. Thinking that we can trade our good works for salvation is like buying a plane ticket and then supposing we own the airline or thinking that after paying rent for our home, we now hold title to the entire planet Earth. If grace is a gift of God, why then is obedience to God's commandments so important? Why bother with God's commandments, or repentance for that matter? 
Why not just admit we're sinful and let God save us? Or to put the question in Paul's words, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is simple and clear. God forbid. Brothers and sisters, we obey the commandments of God out of love for him. Trying to understand God's gift of grace with all our heart and mind gives us all the more reasons to love and obey our Heavenly Father with meekness and gratitude. As we walk the path of discipleship, it refines us, it improves us, it helps us to become more like Him, and it leads us back to His presence. The Spirit of the Lord our God brings about such a mighty change in us that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Therefore, our obedience to God's commandments comes as a natural outgrowth of our endless love and gratitude for the goodness of God. This form of genuine love and gratitude will miraculously merge our works with God's grace. Virtue will garnish our thoughts unceasingly, and our confidence will wax strong in the presence of God. Dear brothers and sisters, living the gospel faithfully is not a burden. It is a joyful rehearsal a preparation for inheriting the grand glory of the eternities. We seek to obey our Heavenly Father because our spirits will become more attuned to spiritual things. Vistas are open that we never knew existed. Enlightenment and understanding come to us when we do the will of the Father. Grace is a gift of God, and our desire to be obedient to each of God's commandments is the reaching out of our mortal hands to receive this sacred gift from our Heavenly Father. The prophet Nephi made an important contribution to our understanding of God's grace when he declared, We labor diligently to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. However, I wonder if sometimes we misinterpret the phrase, after all we can do. We must understand that after does not, equal, does not equal because. We are not saved because of all that we can do. Have any of us done all that we can do? Does God wait until we have expended every effort because, before he will intervene in our lives with his saving grace? Many people feel discouraged because they constantly fall short. They know firsthand that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They raise their voices with Nephi in proclaiming 
my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I'm certain Nephi knew the Savior's grace allows and enables us to overcome sin. This is why Nephi labored so diligently to persuade his children and brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. After all, that is what we can do. And that is our task in mortality. When I think of what the Savior did for us leading up to that first Easter Sunday, I want to lift up my voice and shout praises to the Most High God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The gates of heaven are unlocked. The windows of heaven are opened. Today and forevermore, God's grace is available to all whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite. Jesus Christ has cleared the way for us to ascend to heights incomprehensible to mortal minds. I pray that we will see with new eyes and a new heart the eternal significance of the Savior's atoning sacrifice. I pray that we will show our love for God and our gratitude for the gift of God's infinite grace by keeping His commandments and joyfully walking in a newness of life. In the sacred name of our Master and Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Elder Nielsen, for the remarkably personal candor of that remarkable counsel. Without safety ropes, or harnesses, or climbing gear of any kind, two brothers, Jimmy, aged 14, and John, aged 19, though that's not their real names, attempted to scale a sheer canyon wall in Snow Canyon State Park in my native southern Utah. Near the top of their laborious climb, they discovered that a protruding ledge denied them their final few feet of ascent. They could not get over it, but neither could they now retreat from it. They were stranded. After careful maneuvering, John, the older, found enough footing to boost his younger brother to safety on the top of the ledge. But there was no way to lift himself. The more he strained to find finger or foot leverage, the more his muscles began to cramp. Panic started to sweep over him, and he began to fear for his life. Unable to hold on much longer, John decided his only option 
was to try to jump vertically in an effort to grab the top of the overhanging ledge. If successful, he might, by his considerable arm strength, pull himself to safety. In his own words, he said, Prior to my jump, I told Jimmy to go search for a tree branch strong enough to extend down to me, although I knew there was nothing of the kind on that rocky summit. It was only a desperate ruse. If my jump failed, the least I could do was make certain my little brother did not see me falling to my death. Giving him enough time to be out of sight, I said my last prayer that I wanted my family to know I loved them and that Jimmy could make it home safely on his own. Then I leapt. There was enough adrenaline in my spring that the jump extended my arms above the ledge almost to my elbows. But as I slapped my hands down on the surface, I felt nothing, nothing but loose sand on flat stone. I can still remember the gritty sensation, he says, of hanging there with nothing to hold on to, no lip, no ridge, nothing to grab or grasp. I felt my fingers begin to recede slowly over the sandy surface. I knew my life was over. But then suddenly, like a lightning strike in a summer storm, two hands shot out from somewhere above the edge of the cliff grabbing my wrists with a strength and a determination that belied their size. My faithful little brother had not gone looking for any fictitious tree branch. Guessing exactly what I was planning to do, he had never moved an inch. He had simply waited, silently, almost breathlessly, knowing full well I would be foolish enough to try to make that jump. When I did, he grabbed me. He held me. And he refused to let me fall. Those strong brotherly arms saved my life that day as I dangled helplessly above what surely would have been certain death. My beloved brothers and sisters, today is Easter Sunday. Although we should always remember, we promise in our weekly sacramental prayer that we will, nevertheless, this is the most sacred day of the year for special remembrance of brotherly hands and determined arms 
that reached into the very abyss of death to save us from our fallings and our failings, from our sorrows and from our sins. Against the background of this story reported to me by John's and Jimmy's family, I express my gratitude for the atonement and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge events in the divine plan of God that led up to and give meaning to the love Jesus offers us. In our increasingly secular society, it is as uncommon as it is unfashionable to speak of Adam and Eve or the Garden of Eden or a fortunate fall into mortality. Nevertheless, the simple truth is that we cannot fully comprehend the atonement and resurrection of Christ, and we will not adequately appreciate the unique purpose of his birth or his death. In other words, there's no way to truly celebrate Christmas or Easter without understanding that there was an actual Adam and Eve who fell from an actual Eden with all the consequences that fall carried with it. I do not know the details of what happened on this planet before that, but I do know these two were created under the divine hand of God, that for a time they lived alone in a paradisical setting where there was neither human death nor future family, and that through a sequence of choices, they transgressed a commandment of God which required that they leave their garden setting, but which allowed them to have children before facing physical death. To add further sorrow and complexity to their circumstance, their transgression had spiritual consequences as well, cutting them off from the presence of God forever. Because we were then born into that fallen world, and because we too would transgress the laws of God, we also were sentenced to the same penalties that Adam and Eve faced. What a plight! The entire human race in freefall. Every man, woman, and child in it physically tumbling toward permanent death, spiritually plunging toward eternal anguish. Is that what life was meant to be? Is this the grand finale of the human experience? Are we all just hanging in a cold canyon somewhere in an indifferent universe, each of us searching for a toehold, each of us seeking, seeking for something to help, something to grip, with nothing but the feeling of sand sliding under our fingers, nothing to save us, nothing to hold on to, much less anything to hold on to us. Is our only purpose in life an empty existential exercise, simply to leap as high as we can, hang on for our prescribed three score years and ten, 
and then fail, then fall, and keep falling forever? The answer to those questions is an unequivocal and eternal no. With prophets ancient and modern, I testify that all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Thus, from the moment those first parents stepped out of the Garden of Eden, the God and Father of us all, anticipating Adam and Eve's decision, dispatched the very angels of heaven to declare to them and down through time to us that the entire sequence was designed for our eternal happiness. It was part of his divine plan which provided for a Savior, the very Son of God himself, another Adam, the Apostle Paul would call him, who would come in the meridian of time to atone for the first Adam's transgression. That atonement would achieve complete victory over physical death, unconditionally granting resurrection to every person who has been born or ever will be born into this world. Mercifully, it would also provide forgiveness for the personal sins of all, from Adam to the end of the world, conditioned upon repentance and obedience to divine commandments. As one of his ordained witnesses, I declare this Easter morning that Jesus of Nazareth was and is that Savior of the world, the last Adam, the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and Omega of eternal life. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And from the prophet patriarch Lehi, Adam fell that men might be. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. Most thoroughly of all, the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob taught as part of a two-day sermon on the atonement of Jesus Christ that the resurrection must come by reason of the fall. So today, we celebrate the gift of victory over every fall we've ever experienced, every sorrow we've ever known, every discouragement we've ever had, every fear we've ever faced, to say nothing of resurrection from death and forgiveness for our sins. That victory is available to us because of events that transpired on a weekend precisely like this more than two millennia ago in Jerusalem. Beginning in the spiritual anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane, moving to the crucifixion on a cross at Calvary, 
and concluding on a beautiful Sunday morning inside a donated tomb, a sinless, pure, and holy man, the very Son of God himself, did what no other deceased person had ever done nor ever could do. Under his own power, he rose from death, never to have his body separated from his spirit again. Of his own volition, he shed the burial linen with which he had been bound, carefully putting the burial napkin that had been placed over his face in a place by itself, the scripture says. That first Easter sequence of atonement and resurrection constitutes the most consequential moment, the most generous gift, the most excruciating pain, and the most majestic manifestation of pure love ever to be demonstrated in the history of this world. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, suffered, died, and rose from death in order that he could, like lightning in a summer storm, grasp us as we fell, held us with his might, and through our obedience to his commandments, lift us to eternal life. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that Jesus still stands triumphant over death although he stands on wounded feet. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that he still extends unending grace, although he extends it with pierced palms and scarred wrists. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that we can sing before a sweat-stained garden, a nail-driven cross, and a gloriously empty tomb. How great, how glorious, how complete. Redemption's grand design. Where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine. In the sacred name of the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Savior Jesus Christ spent his earthly ministry teaching of his healing and redemptive power. On one occasion in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, he was actually criticized for eating and spending time with sinners. The Savior used this criticism as an opportunity to teach us all how to respond to those who have lost their way. He replied to us, to his critics, by asking them two important questions. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? 
What woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? The Savior then teaches the parable of the prodigal son. This parable isn't about 100 sheep or 10 pieces of silver. It is about one precious son who is lost. Through the parable, what does the Savior teach us about how to respond when a family member loses his or her way? The prodigal son informs his father that he wants his inheritance now. He wants to leave the safety of his home and his family and seek after worldly pursuits. Please note that in the Savior's parable, the father lovingly responds by giving the son his inheritance and letting him go. Certainly, the father must have done everything he could to convince the son to stay. However, once the adult son makes his choice, the wise father lets him go. The father then demonstrates sincere love, and he watches and he waits. My family had a similar experience. My two faithful brothers, wonderful sister, and I were raised by exemplary parents. We were taught the gospel in our home. We successfully made it to adulthood, and all four of us were sealed in the temple to our spouses. However, in 1994, our sister Susan became disenchanted with the Church and some of its teachings. She was persuaded by those who mocked and criticized the early leaders of the Church. She allowed her faith in living prophets and apostles to diminish. Over time, her doubts overcame her faith, and she chose to leave the Church. Susan has given me permission to share her story with the hope that it might help others. My brothers and I and our widowed mother were devastated. We couldn't imagine what possibly could have led her to abandon her faith. My sister's choices seemed to be breaking our mother's heart. My brothers and I had served as bishops and quorum presidents, and we had experienced the joy of success with ward and quorum members as we left the ninety and nine and went after the one. However, with our sister, our persistent efforts to rescue her and to invite her back only pushed her further and further away. As we sought heavenly guidance as to how we might properly respond to her, it became evident that we had to follow the example of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Susan had made her choice, and we had to figuratively let her go, but not without her knowing and feeling our sincere love for her. And so, with renewed love and kindness, we watched and we waited. My mother never stopped loving and caring for Susan. Every time my mother attended the temple, she placed Susan's name on the prayer roll and never lost hope. My older brother and his wife, who lived closest to Susan in California, invited her to all family events. They prepared dinner in their home each year on Susan's birthday. They made sure they were always in touch with her and that she knew of their genuine love for her. My younger brother and his wife reached out to Susan's children in Utah and cared for them and loved them. They made sure that her children were always invited to family gatherings, and when it came time for Susan's granddaughter to be baptized, my brother was there to perform the ordinance. Susan also had loving home teachers and visiting teachers who never gave up. As our children went on missions and were married, Susan was invited and attended those family celebrations. We tried diligently to create family events so that Susan and her children could be with us and they would know that we loved them and that they were part of our family. 
as Susan received an advanced degree at a California university, we were all there to support her at her graduation. Although we could not embrace all of her choices, we could certainly embrace her. We loved, we watched, and we waited. In 2006, after 12 years had passed since Susan left the Church, our daughter Katie moved with her husband to California so he could attend law school. They were in the same city as Susan. This young couple looked to their Aunt Susan for help and support, and they loved her. Susan helped care for our two-year-old granddaughter Lucy, and Susan found herself helping Lucy with her nightly prayers. Katie called me one day and asked if I ever thought Susan would come back to the Church. I assured her that I felt she would and that we needed to continue to be patient. As another three years passed, with continued love, we watched and we waited. Six years ago this weekend, my wife Marcy and I were sitting on the front row of this conference center. I was to be sustained as a new general authority that day. Marcia, who was always in touch with the Spirit, had written a note to me that read, I think it's time for Susan to come back. My daughter Katie suggested that I leave and call Susan to invite her to watch General Conference that day. Prompted by these two great women, I walked to the foyer and called my sister. I got her voicemail and simply invited her to watch that session of General Conference. She got the message. To our delight, she felt impressed to watch all the sessions of conference. She heard from prophets and apostles she had loved in earlier years. She found new names she had not heard before, like President Uchtdorf and Elders Bednar, Cook, Christofferson, and Anderson. During this and other unique heaven-sent experiences, my sister, like the prodigal son, came to herself. The words of prophets and apostles and the love of her family moved her to turn and begin the walk back home. After 15 years, our daughter and sister, who was lost, had been found. The watch and the wait were over. Susan describes this experience just as Lehi described it in the Book of Mormon. She let go of the iron rod and found herself in a mist of darkness. She states that she did not know she was lost until her faith was reawakened by the light of Christ, which brightly magnified the stark contrast between what she was experiencing in the world and what the Lord and her family were offering. A miracle has occurred over the past six years. Susan has a renewed testimony of the Book of Mormon. She has received her temple recommend. She has served as an ordinance worker in the temple, and she currently teaches the gospel doctrine class in her ward. The windows of heaven have opened to her and her grandchildren, and although there have been difficult consequences, it feels as if she never left. Some of you, like the Nielsen family, have family members who have temporarily lost their way. The Savior's instruction to all who have 100 sheep is to leave the 90 and 9 and go after and rescue the one. His instruction to those who have ten pieces of silver is to lose, and if you lose one, is to search until you find it. But when the lost one is your son or your daughter, your brother or your sister, and he or she has chosen to leave, we learned in our family that after all we can do, we love that person with all of our hearts, and we watch 
we pray and we wait for the Lord's hand to be revealed. Perhaps the most important lesson the Lord taught me through this process happened during our family scripture study after my sister left the church. Our son David was reading as we studied together Luke 15. As he read the parable of the prodigal son, I heard it differently that day than I had ever heard it before. For some reason, I had always related to the son who stayed home. As David read that morning, I realized that in some ways I was the prodigal son. All of us fall short of the glory of the Father. All of us need the Savior's atonement to heal us. All of us are lost and need to be found. This revelation that day helped me know that my sister and I both needed the Savior's love and His atonement. Susan and I were actually on the same path back home. The Savior's words in the parable as He describes the Father greeting His prodigal son are powerful, and I believe maybe the description of the experience you and I will have with the Father when we return to our heavenly home. They teach us of a Father who loves, waits, and watches. These are the words of the Savior. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. May you and I receive the revelation to know how to best approach those in our lives who are lost and when necessary to have the patience and love of our Father in heaven and his Son as we love, watch, and wait for the prodigal. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My wife and I had the great joy of rearing our five children near the magnificent city of Paris. During those years, we wanted to offer them rich opportunities to discover the marvelous things of this world. Each summer, our family took long trips to visit the most significant monuments, historic sites, and natural wonders of Europe. Finally, after spending 22 years in the Paris area, we were getting ready to move. I still remember the day when my children came to me and said, Dad, it is absolutely shameful. We have lived here all our lives, and we have never been to the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> There are so many wonders in this world. However, sometimes when we have them constantly before our eyes, we take them for granted. We look, but we don't really see. We hear but we don't really listen. During his earthly ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. I have often wondered what it would have been like to live at the time of our Savior. Can you imagine sitting at His feet, feeling His embrace, witnessing as He ministered to others? And yet so many who met Him failed to recognize, to see that the very Son of God was living among them. We too are privileged to live in an exceptional time The prophets of old saw the work of the Restoration as a marvelous work, yea, a marvelous work and a wonder. In no previous dispensation have so many missionaries been called, so many nations been opened for the gospel message, and so many temples been built throughout the world. 
For us, as Latter-day Saints, wonders also occur in our individual lives. They include our own personal conversion, the answers we receive to our prayers, and the tender blessings God showers upon us daily. To marvel at the wonders of the gospel is a sign of faith. It is to recognize the hand of the Lord in our lives and in everything around us. Our amazement also produces special strength. It gives us the energy to remain anchored in our faith and to engage ourselves in the work of salvation. But let us beware. Our ability to marvel is fragile. Over the long term, such things as casual commandment-keeping, apathy, or even weariness may sadden and make us insensitive to the most remarkable signs and miracles of the gospel. The Book of Mormon describes a period very similar to our own that preceded the coming of the Messiah to the Americas. Suddenly, the signs of his birth appeared in the heavens. The people were so stricken with astonishment that they humbled themselves and nearly all were converted. However, only a short four years later, quote, the people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or the wonder from heaven and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen. Close quote. My brothers and sisters, is the gospel still wonderful to you? Can you yet see, hear, feel, and marvel? Or have your special senses gone into standby mode? Whatever your personal situation, I invite you to do three things. First, never tire of discovering or rediscovering the truth of the gospel. The writer Marcel Proust said, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Close quote. Do you remember the first time you read a verse of Scripture and felt as if the Lord was speaking to you personally? Can you recall the first time you felt the sweet influence of the Holy Ghost come over you, perhaps before you even realized it was the Holy Ghost? Weren't these sacred, special moments? We should hunger and thirst every day after spiritual knowledge. This personal practice is founded on study, meditation, and prayer. Sometimes we might be tempted to think, I don't need to study the scriptures today. I've read them all before. Or, I don't need to go to church today. There is nothing new there. But the gospel is a fountain of knowledge that never runs dry. There is always something new to learn and feel each Sunday in every meeting and in every verse of Scripture. In faith, we hold to the promise that if we seek, we shall find. Second, anchor your faith in the plain and simple truth of the gospel. Our amazement should be rooted in the core principles of our faith, in the purity of our covenants and ordinances, and in our most simple acts of worship. A sister missionary told the story of three men she met during a district conference in Africa. They came from an isolated village far away in the bush, 
where the church had not yet been organized, but where there were 15 faithful members and almost 20 investigators. For over two weeks, these men had walked on foot, traveling more than 300 miles over a path rendered muddy by the rainy season, so they could attend the conference and bring the tithes from the members of their group. They planned to stay for an entire week so they could enjoy the privilege of partaking of the sacrament the following Sunday and then hope to set out on the return trip carrying boxes filled with copies of the Book of Mormon on their heads to give to the people of their village. The missionary testified how touched she was by the sense of wonder these brethren displayed and by their wholehearted sacrifices to obtain things that for her had always been readily available. She wondered, if I got up one Sunday morning in Arizona and found that my car wasn't working, would I walk to my church only a few blocks away from home? Or would I just stay home because it was too far or because it was raining? These are good questions for all of us to consider. Finally, I invite you to seek and cherish the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Most wonders of the gospel cannot be perceived by our natural senses. They are the things that the eye has not seen, nor ye heard, the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. When we have the Spirit with us, our spiritual senses are sharpened, and our memory is kindled so we cannot forget the miracles and signs we have witnessed. That is why, knowing Jesus was about to leave them, his Nephi disciples prayed fervently, quote, for that which they most desired, and they desired that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. Although they had seen the Savior with their own eyes and had touched his wounds with their own hands, they knew that their testimonies might dwindle without being constantly renewed by the power of the Spirit of God. My brothers and sisters, never do anything to risk the loss of this precious and marvelous gift, the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Seek it through fervent prayer and righteous living. I testify that the work in which we are engaged is a marvelous work and a wonder as we follow Jesus Christ, God bears witness to us with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. On this special day, I bear witness that the wonders and marvels of the gospel are anchored in the greatest of all of God's gifts, the Savior's atonement. This is a perfect gift of love that the Father and the Son united in purpose have offered to each one of us, with you. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. That we may always have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that perceive the wonders of this marvelous gospel is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, it is a great joy 
that I stand here before you as we participate in this general conference together. Listening to the words of wisdom, counsel, comfort, and warning given in general conferences over many years has been an immeasurable blessing to Sister Teixeira, to our family, and to myself. In this special season of the year, especially on this Easter Sabbath, I cannot help but reflect on the significance of the Savior's teachings and His kind and loving example in my life. A deeper understanding of Jesus Christ will give us greater hope for the future and, despite our imperfections, more confidence in achieving our righteous goals. This will also grant us a greater desire to serve our fellow men. The Lord said, Seek me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Seeking the Lord and feeling His presence is a daily quest, a, worth, a worthwhile effort. Brothers and sisters, today, more than any other time, we have at our disposal exceptional opportunities and resources to deepen our understanding of the teachings of Jesus Christ and His Atonement. Using these resources appropriately will help us live a fruitful life filled with joy. In the Savior's metaphor of the vine and the branches, He said, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can he except he abided in me. The more we understand the extraordinary role of Christ in our lives, the more conscious we will become of our purpose here in mortality, which is to have joy. That joy, however, does not preclude us from experiencing trials and difficulties even some so great and complex that might lead us to think that happiness is not possible in such circumstances. I know by personal experience that the joy of living in righteousness and abiding in Christ can continue despite the tribulations characteristic of mortality. Ultimately, these tribulations often enrich, refine, and guide us to a deeper understanding of our purpose and our existence here in mortality and of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the fullness of joy can only be achieved through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. I believe that as we deepen our understanding of the Savior, we will have an increased desire to live joyfully and a conviction that joy is possible. Consequently, we will have a greater ability to go about each day with more enthusiasm for life and for keeping the commandments of God, even in challenging circumstances. Let us not leave for tomorrow what we can do today. It is now that we must come to Christ, because if we believe Him, we will labor while it is called today. Every day we should consider including frequent interactions with the teachings of Christ. Small and simple gestures and acts made daily 
will deepen our understanding of the significance of the Lord in our lives and will help us share this understanding with the rising generations who will surely feel the love of Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, when they see our example of sincerely leaving the gospel. So what are some of the simple behaviors in this modern time that will become a balm for our souls in strengthening our testimony of Christ and His mission? In 2014, the National Geographic Photo Context received 9,200 submissions by professional photographers and enthusiasts from over 150 countries. The winning photo depicts a woman in the center of a train filled with passengers. The light coming from a mobile phone illuminates her face. She relays a clear message to the other passengers. Despite being physically present, she is not truly there. Mobile data, smartphones, and social networks have profoundly changed our way of being in the world and how we communicate with others. In this digital era, we can so rapidly transport ourselves to places and activities that can quickly remove us from what is essential for a life filled with lasting joy. This networked life can, if left unchecked, give precedent to relationships with people that we don't know or have never met, rather than with people we live with, our own family. On the other hand, we all know that we are blessed with the excellent online resources, including those developed by the Church, such as text and audio versions of the Holy Scriptures and General Conference, video productions of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, apps to record our family history, and opportunities to listen to inspiring music. The choices and priorities we make with our time online are decisive. They can determine our spiritual progress and maturity in the gospel and our desire to contribute to a better world and to live a more productive life. For these reasons, today I would like to mention three simple habits that will establish healthy online activity. These habits will generate the daily self-reflections that are necessary for us to grow closer to the teachings of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Habit number one. Visit the Church's official websites for resources. Often visits during the week to these resources will help us to always be sensitive to the teachings of the gospel and encourage our family and friends to think and reflect on what matters most. Habit number two, subscribe to Church's official social networks. This choice will bring to your screen the content that is essential to deepen your search and seeking of the Lord and His teachings, and it will strengthen your desire to understand the gospel. More importantly, this will help you remember what Christ expects of us. Just as there is no good soil without a good farmer, farmer likewise, there will be no good online harvest unless we prioritize from the very beginning which is accessible to our fingers 
into our minds. Habit number three, make time to set aside your mobile devices. It is refreshing to put aside our electronic devices for a while and instead turn the pages of the scriptures or take time to converse with family and friends. Especially in the Lord's Day, experience the peace of participating in a sacrament meeting without the constant urge to see if you have a new message or a new post. The habit of setting aside your mobile device for a time will enrich and broaden your view of life, for life is not confined to a four-inch screen. The Lord Jesus Christ said, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue he in my love. God wants us to have joy and to feel his love. Christ makes such joy a possibility for each of us. We have the means to know him better and to live his gospel. I bear my testimony of the joy that exists when we keep the commandments and the peace and safety that we feel when we abide in the love of Heavenly Father and His Son, our Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On this Easter morning, President Monson, we are so grateful to hear the voice of our living prophet. We value your words, including your counsel. Find joy in the journey, and the future is as bright as your faith. This year, primary children are sharing the joy and the brightness of their faith in Jesus Christ when they sing the song, I Know That My Savior Loves Me. They sing the truth, I know He lives. My heart I give to Him. Like primary children, every one of us can strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ on our individual journey and find joy. In a recent Relief Society, I listened to a young mother share part of her journey of conversion. She had grown up in the Church with parents who taught her the gospel. She attended primary, young women, and seminary. She loved to learn and discover truths. Her constant quest was to know why. Elder Russell M. Nelson has said, The Lord can only teach an inquiring mind, and this young woman was teachable. After high school, she attended a university, was sealed in the temple to a return missionary, and was blessed with beautiful children. With a spirit of inquiry, this mother continued to ask questions. But as the questions grew harder, so did the answers. And sometimes there were no answers, or no answers that brought peace. Eventually, as she sought to find answers, more and more questions arose, and she began to question some of the very foundations of her faith. During this confusing time, some of those around her said, just lean on my faith. But she thought, I can't. You don't understand. You're not grappling with these issues. She explained, I was willing to extend courtesy to those without doubts if they would extend courtesy to me. And many did. She said, My parents knew my heart and allowed me space. They chose to love me while I was trying to figure it out for myself. 
Likewise, this young mother's bishop often met with her and spoke of his confidence in her. Ward members also did not hesitate to give love, and she felt included. Her ward was not a place to put on a perfect face. It was a place of nurture. It was interesting, she remembers. During this time, I felt a real connection to my grandparents who had died. They were pulling for me and urging me to keep trying. I felt they were saying, focus on what you know. In spite of her substantial support system, she became less active. She said, I did not separate myself from the Church because of bad behavior, spiritual apathy, looking for an excuse not to live the commandments, or searching for an easy out. I felt I needed the answer to the question, what do I really believe? About this time, she read a book of the writings of Mother Teresa, who had shared similar feelings. In a 1953 letter, Mother Teresa wrote, Please pray specially for me that I may not spoil His work and that our Lord may show Himself, for there is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. Ask our Lord to give me courage. Archbishop Perrier responded, God guides you, dear Mother. You are not so much in the dark as you think. The path to be followed may not always be clear at once. Pray for light. Do not decide too quickly. Listen to what others have to say. Consider their reasons. You will always find something to help you. Guided by faith, by prayer, and by reason, you have a right intention. You have enough. My friend thought, if Mother Teresa could live her religion without all the answers and without a feeling of clarity in all things, maybe she could, too. She could take one simple step forward in faith and then another. She could focus on the truth she did believe and let those truths fill her mind and heart. As she reflected back, she said, My testimony had become like a pile of ashes. It had all burned down. All that remained was Jesus Christ. She continued, But He does not leave you when you have questions. When anyone tries to keep the commandments, the door is wide open. Prayer and scripture study become incredibly important. Her first step to rebuild her faith was to start with basic gospel truths. She bought a primary songbook and began reading the words of the songs. They were treasures to her. She prayed for faith to lift the heaviness she felt. She learned that when she came up against a statement that caused her to doubt, she could stop, look at the whole picture, and make the gospel personal. She said, I would ask, is this the right path for me and my family? Sometimes I'd ask myself, what do I want for my children? I realized. I want them to have temple marriages. That's when belief came back to my heart. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has said, Humility, faith, and the influence of the Holy Spirit will always be elements of every quest for truth. Though she had questions about how the Book of Mormon came to be, she could not deny the truth she knew in the Book of Mormon. 
She had focused on studying the New Testament to better understand the Savior, but eventually she said, I found myself back in the Book of Mormon because I loved what I felt when reading about Jesus Christ and His Atonement. She concluded, You have to have your own spiritual experiences with the truths in that book. And she was having them. She explained, I read in Mosiah and felt completely directed. Believe in God. Believe that He is and that He created all things. Believe that He has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. About this time, a call came to serve as primary pianist. It was safe, she said. I wanted to have my children in primary, and now I could be with them. And I wasn't ready to teach yet. As she served, she continued to feel from those around her, Come, we want you whatever stage you are at, and we'll meet you there. Give us whatever you have to offer. Playing the primary song, she often thought to herself, Here are truths I love. I can still bear testimony. I will just say those things that I know and trust. It may not be a perfect offering of knowledge, but it will be my offering. What I focus on expands inside of me. It is beautiful to get back to the essence of the gospel and feel clarity. On that Sunday morning, as I listened to this young sister share the story of her journey, I was reminded that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer that we all must build our foundation. I was also reminded of the counsel of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. During her lesson, I came to know more fervently that answers to our sincere questions come when we earnestly seek and when we live the commandments. I was reminded that our faith can reach beyond the limits of current reason. And oh, how I want to be like those who surrounded this young mother, loving and supporting her. As President Dieter F. Utdorf said, we are all pilgrims seeking God's light as we journey on the path of discipleship. We do not condemn others for the amount of light they may or may not have. Rather, we nourish and encourage all light until it grows clear, bright, and true. When the primary children sing a child's prayer, they ask, Heavenly Father, are you really there? And do you hear and answer every child's prayer? We too may wonder, is Heavenly Father really there? Only to rejoice, as my friend did, when the answers come in quiet, simple assurances. I testify those simple assurances come as His will becomes ours. I testify that truth is on the earth today, and His gospel is found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.